tonight I want to just share some thoughts about the second of the three characteristics. <clears throat> Last week I talked about Anicca, so tonight I want to talk about Dukkha. Of course, not exhaustively, but just sharing some things about it. So Dukkha, as the second characteristic, also, of course, the first noble truth. So it was really given a very um, central place in the Buddha's teachings and the things that he thought it essential to talk about. And so just to, be, to, to understand, really, not to talk about. And so as Dukkha, I know many of us who have been in this scene for a while, tend to use Dukkha, even though we know maybe suffering is not the best translation. But we, I certainly do, and I notice many other people, tend to use the word dukkha as a shorthand for unpleasant things that we wish weren't happening. Like if someone comes in and says, oh, I'm having a real dukkha day. Well, according to the first noble truth, every day is a dukkha day, you know? But we, t- we take it as a dukkha, everything's going, you know, in a bad direction. I'm suffering, I'm unhappy, and things are bad. And so when I say I want to talk about dukkha, just notice for yourself, if just some subtle or not so subtle quality of aversion pops, ah, oh, Dukkha, God damn, you know, I really don't want to hear about this. And realizing the first noble truth or understanding Dukkha as a characteristic has nothing to do with cultivating aversion. It's not about aversion. And so if you notice, as soon as we think, oh, that's life is suffering. Everything's suffering. As soon as we translate it suffering in English, it is so easy to move into that connotation of ah, all the bad stuff. Remember the first noble truth, as Dukkha, the Buddha talked about, the first noble truth is to be understood. To be understood. And why? Why does it seem that he shared anything? Why do we practice? Understand it so that somehow we can, you know, be right or it would be better for us or we have to take our medicine, you know, or whatever. No, to understand it is to free our hearts and minds from actual suffering of recognizing wrongly. Same with impermanence. Not recognizing accurately, not understanding this truth of dukkha. And it's profound. I have no... um, at all idea that I'm explaining it all tonight. I'm just dropping in some different ways of looking at it. But just notice, even as we start, if the habit of your mind tends to a subtle aversion or a little shutting down or, okay, I'll listen, but notice that. Notice that veil. Notice that that little bit of bias because that is a good example of, of mostly how we meet a lot of the aspects that he talks about in the first noble truth in our life. It's not about aversion. The definition I currently like the best, two ways of describing this word dukkha, comes not only, but I read about it in Analayo, where he's breaking down the actual word uh, dukkha in the Pali. And he gives a couple of examples. One is that the do part can mean difficulty, not quite working right. And the ka part 
means uh, an axle hole. Like they have these big ox carts at the time of the Buddha with a big round wooden wheel and a hole in the middle that the axle would go through. So dukkha actually means the axle just not fitting properly in the hole. So every time the wheel's turning, there's a kind of a disharmony, a kind of a friction, a kind of it's just not quite working right. And another uh, explanation he gives a different way of of um, parsing that word is that du can mean difficulty and shta is standing. So it's kind of standing badly, uneasy, uncomfortable. Or as Bhikkhu Bodhi describes it, the basic unsatisfactoriness, the basic uh, just not quite a little bit of friction running through our lives. And if you're sitting there thinking, there's no friction running through my life, May you be happy. (laughs) My mother used to say, she didn't really understand this, but once she came to visit IMS, the retreat center, you know, it says metta up above. And somehow she knew, oh, metta. That's like the opposite of dukkha, isn't it? And somehow, I don't know where she got that, but I thought it was very nice. And I was trying to explain dukkha as, you know, this friction running through our lives. She goes, well, I don't have any dukkha, you know? So that's one of the ways that delusion works, if you remember from last week, just flat out denial. So I'll tell you a story just to cheer you up about dukkha and axle carts. This last uh, axle wheels, this last year when I was in Burma, we were uh, in um, a little village up in up, up country Burma, a few hour, a couple hours out of Sagain, visiting and with our Sayadaw and we were setting up um, uh, a little fund for the the 50-some-odd kids in that village who couldn't go, afford to go to school. And so they were, you know, kind of, they, the village basically made sure of what we were doing every moment of the day. You can't just say, I'll take the afternoon off and go for a walk, forget about it. So they decided this morning, we all had, there were six of us, had to go for a ride in an ox cart out through these deeply rutted pathways into this giant watermelon field. So it was just like this ox cart, big wooden wheel, a little uh, axle thing going through the hole. It was definitely friction, disharmony. I cannot tell you how uncomfortable it was riding in that ox cart through these ruts and bouncing and the dust was coming up. I'm not exaggerating any of this. Higher than, than the cart and it's tilting down. And, Never mind springs. I mean, every time it would hit a rut, we'd like fly up and wham back down. And, and then we got out to this watermelon field. It's like, so what? We don't want to see this watermelon field. It took us 45 minutes. And we had two nuns with us, Western nuns. And we got there at about 20 minutes to 12, which meant that they were serving us lunch in like five minutes. And if they didn't make it back for lunch, they didn't get any food for the rest of the day. And it had taken us 45 minutes to get there in this dukkha cart. <laughs> that surely was a dukkha cart. And then they unhooked the oxen and they're off there showing us the watermelon fields. And we kind of said, okay, something isn't going to work about this. This is Sankara dukkha. It doesn't work. And we started walking really fast back, which of course freaked the guys out who were driving us because it was their job to take care of us and we had just like abandoned them. And they hooked up the ox and came running after us. But meanwhile, we figured out 
this is on the edge of a river, and the river was flowing, and here was the village. And we'd come this really long, complicated way. So we thought, we'll just walk back along the river. And they got the ox, and they came running for us and said, no, you must get in. You must get in. We must take care of you. We said, no, we only have 10 minutes to lunch. So we walked back along the river. It was less than a 10-minute walk along the river. <laughs> it, was, it was like one of those experiences. So that whole experience is dukkha. But I just want to say the sense of the friction of the axle not fitting in the hole of the wheel of the ox cart is a very apt description of this, just this sense of friction running through our lives. So in the suttas, the Buddha mentions three kinds of dukkha, and I'm sure you're familiar with this. I just want to mention, mention them and then talk about how we um, can misunderstand. So the first one, you all know this dukkha dukkha, which is the basic, your basic unpleasant, difficult experience. And this is the one that we all just kind of label everything dukkha. We, we think of this. And this is the classic definition. I'm sure you've heard. Birth is suffering. Aging is suffering. Illness is suffering. Death is suffering. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are suffering. And I'm using suffering on purpose now because I would say these things are suffering. Separation from what is pleasing, union with what is displeasing, and not to get what one wants is suffering. In brief, clinging to the five aggregates is suffering. Five aggregates is nama rupa is mind of consciousness, perception, vedna, feeling, tone, sankharas, mental formations, and form. You really could say, in other words, clinging. So that basic dukkha dukkha, the problem with that, and well, as I talk about it a bit more later, that's just the first one, dukkha dukkha. The second one is called viparinama dukkha, and it's basically the fact of change, which I talked about a lot last week. It's also included under the sense of uh, unsatisfactoriness of things just not quite working right. Basically, that there's nothing we can rely on, as I said last week. And it's under this one, of Viparinama, that in the commentaries, this is where pleasant feeling is included. So we tend to think of dukkha as 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 a characteristic of all phenomena, being that we can't rely on it. Our mind, as I said in the beginning, tends to go to the unpleasant thinking of unsatisfactory as bad. But here the Buddha is saying pleasant feeling also is included within dukkha. And I will talk more about that in a minute as well. And the third one, sankhara dukkha. Sankhara, you know, is the word that's translated, uh, sometimes it's translated as mental formations, but it's really any formation. Sankhara is um, anything that is formed or fashioned by conditions. Whatever comes together goes apart. That's sankhara. In terms of the five aggregates, sankhara is used as intention, as really all of our mental formations. In terms of this uh, sankhara as dukkha, of the first noble truth, it's often talked about as the fact that whatever comes together is going to come apart and this is constantly going on. And so the way it's described, in the, again, in the commentaries is 
when we're experiencing sankara dukkha, it's recognizing that there's a sometimes very subtle, sometimes not, quality of being oppressed by the constant rise and fall of everything. Just this, this fact that there's nowhere to rest and that it often doesn't quite work. This, uh, this sense of the subtle disconnect, this unsatisfactoriness running through life that Bhikkhu Bodhi talks about. And our struggle with that, there's a Tibetan phrase, I've heard Guy use it, so I asked him, I thought it was Trungpa, but he said, no, he doesn't know who it's from. But I really like it. I think it, it it's, describes our unawake response to sankhara dukkha, which is the essence of samsara, these rounds of birth and death and wanting and suffering. The essence of samsara is trying to correct, trying to just make it a little bit better. This moment, this moment, this moment, this moment. To me, that's the best feeling I get of Sankara Dukkha. Just not quite totally settled in this moment. So I'll talk a little bit about each of these. And you get it. This is including Dukkha as the first noble truth to be understood as a mark, an aspect, a characteristic of all phenomena, it's really a radical understanding. That's why to, to, to kind of stop with the sense of dukkha as unpleasant or things we don't like or actual physical suffering, it's so limiting. We really uh, need to open ourselves to explore, to try to understand. It's really quite radical that when he's talking about all aspect of phenomenal existence is dukkha, has this thread of unsatisfactoriness in it. That's not to make us suicidal. It's to free us. But it has to be, it has to be that radical to free us. Otherwise, the mind is always trying to find some kind of happiness and ease where it can't, not recognizing accurately, and that little bit is what keeps us spinning. And so, as with everything he taught that I can understand, uh, understanding dukkha, even when we have moments of understanding, it frees us. And I personally, I find it really inspiring and energizing, not at all depressing, but sort of like, oh, right, Instead of everyone going around with the emperor's new clothes, you know, someone saying, yes, the emperor has no clothes on. That's an old uh, kind of, uh, what would you call it? Not fairy tale exactly, but moral tale. But anyway, I know when I first began to hear about this, sometime after I started practicing, I didn't uh, hear much. You just hear what we're ready to hear, right? So I'm sure it was talked about, but I didn't hear it for a while. But when I first heard this sense of this, this thread of unsatisfactoriness and nothing, even the beautiful can be relied on, I felt such a sense of, um, of relief, of wholeness, of like things coming back into balance. Like, oh, I'm not crazy. 
And I don't know, just taking very simple examples of you, know, you go somewhere with people to the movies, or you go out to dinner and, oh, this is going to be so great. We're going to have such a nice night. You go, and when it's over, people, oh, that was so wonderful. You hear people telling the next day, that was such a nice night. And my experience would have been, well, some of it was nice. If the car ride there was kind of long, a little bit cold, we were a little bit cramped, you know, and then, but it was okay. We didn't have a crash. We had some nice conversation, but then the radio was too loud. And it, it wasn't like I was so thrilled when I got out of the car. And you go in the restaurant and, you know, you're looking and you're talking and you wait and you're sitting there and it's a little bit noisy and you order some food, but it's not really what I had in mind. I was kind of more in the mood for seafood, but this, you know, but okay, this really tastes good. And, and I'm not being, not being negative, but everyone's like, this is so great, this is so great. But then, well, okay, but you know, the peas are a little mushy, you know, but this is really great, this is so good. And you have a conversation, and part of the time you're bored, and part of the time you're thinking about, what if I was back home in time to see that movie on TV, or this is good, but oh, it's an hour's drive home, and it's so cold tonight, and I wish I would have just stayed home in the first place. And, oh, no, no, this is great. You, know, you get home, and the next day everyone goes, it was wonderful. And I'll think, well, you know, it wasn't like it was bad, but it wasn't really wonderful either. It had moments of everything. You know what I mean? And when I saw, oh, I don't have to, there's not something wrong with me that I'm not getting completely, you know, thrilled with all these things that everybody's saying is great. There's not something really twisted about my mind that I keep waiting for everything to be perfect, like I read about in the books, and it doesn't happen. You know, I kept thinking something was wrong with me, but no. That's not the same as saying everything stinks, you know, and, and life is all suffering. It's not saying that. It's saying, let's look at what's really going on, what's really going on. It's not depressing at all. It's like just saying, oh, yeah, that axle hole is rubbing. And if I don't need it to be different, if I'm not expecting to be driving in a Peugeot, if I'm, you know, no, I'm driving and it's a, a friction axle hole, Okay, that's fine. I don't give different expectations. I'm not looking for it to make my day, you know. It's fine, just as it is. We can really appreciate life. So those same qualities, the way delusion shows up that I talked about with impermanence, are also true for understanding, or maybe not understanding, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, this, this friction. It's just not quite right. Or as Ruth Dennison used to say, it's just a little hole in the canoe. You know, you're paddling, everything's fine, but there's just this little hole in the canoe. It's always just leaking a little bit, or sometimes more than a little bit. So main one's denial, just flat-out denial, and we're all very familiar with this. And the other is the misperception, the not perceiving accurately due to the holding back in the aversion in the mind. I love exploring denial. I was talking to somebody about this, I think, because it's such an, or maybe it was this morning, I don't know when I said what. But it's such an amazing quality in the mind where you can almost see the mind going, that's not happening and I don't see it, you know? Or I'm just not gonna look at that and I'm just gonna pretend everything's fine. So denial of, first, just flat-out dukkha-dukkha. And this is what's amazing. The fact that old age, sickness, disease, and death happens to everybody. It's the same with impermanence. We go, yeah, sure, 
but not me, not yet, you know? And when something like that does happen, it's because there's not that complete understanding and acceptance that this is just the nature of whatever's compounded is going to change, is changing right now. It's not quite deeply seen that when something really difficult, just on the dukkha dukkha level, happens to us, separation from what is loved, having to be together with what is unloved. Well, how often does that happen? A lot. That it's easy to turn it into of either pretending that's not happening or it's a mistake. It shouldn't happen. And if I would have figured things out right or done stuff differently or taken vitamin C or whatever it is, this wouldn't be happening. There's something wrong with me or there's something wrong with you or there's something wrong with something somewhere because this shouldn't be happening. Instead of just bringing this clear, calm, uncluttered attention to just notice how things are, like I described going to dinner, without judgment, just noticing this is a pleasant moment, this is a not pleasant moment, this is pleasant, but my mind's wanting it to do more. Oh, that's the suffering, just noticing it. No problem. We don't notice it. We don't know how to respond appropriately because we don't even know what's happening. And we get more and more confused and more suffering. I read a book a few years ago uh, called Unquiet Ghost, where the man who wrote it had gone to um, Russia in the 1990s after the end of the Soviet Union. And he talked to uh, a lot of people who had been uh, during the era of Stalin, those years when like, something like 20 million Russian citizens were um, put into prison camps, into the gulags. Or maybe it's 20 million who died, and more than that were in them. But there was periods in the 30s and 40s where so many people were arrested, and often for doing nothing. I mean, it was, it was huge. It was called the Years of Terror. So he went, and he was, after the end of the Soviet Union, a little bit it could start to be talked about. It wasn't talked about much. But the, the writer of this book was interviewing people he could find who had both been in the gulag, had lived through it, or family members or neighbors. And I mean, it was interesting, but the, this one quotation I have from it I like turned to me almost as if the book was a, a meditation on the power of denial in our minds and in society. So he's, he's saying that he discovered from talking to many people that the people during the periods of the terror that the people who tried to avoid arrest by lying low and moving from place to place, basically running, had a good chance of success. Because he said at that time the KGB was good at arresting people, but it wasn't so good at searching and finding them. However, people rarely tried to do this. Despite mass arrests, almost everybody believed it won't happen to me. Because people deny bad news because it implies worse news. If I'm about to be arrested, that would mean that the whole system has gone mad. I know I've done nothing, therefore it can't be true I'll be arrested. Anyone else who was arrested must have done something bad. Until they come for you. George Orwell talked about the courage of perception, the power of facing unpleasant facts. I would call understanding dukkha not only the power of facing unpleasant facts, but just 
facing facts in general, which is, as you might recognize, mindfulness. It's not that we need to get all negative and let's look for the, the unsatisfactory aspect of everything. It's just the same as with impermanence. If we simply rest with steady moment-to-moment awareness, noticing what's presenting itself in this moment without bias, without um, preference, the fact of the change and the fact of the, the unreliability, this thread of nothing really being stable, nothing really doing it for us, will be obvious. The thread that unpleasant, difficult stuff does happen not only to others, but to me, not only to me, but to others, is obvious. And we start to see that the real suffering that our understanding can free us from is the suffering of our mind and heart that doesn't understand and stays lost in the denial, in the aversion, in the blame, in the judgment. It's rooted in the the misunderstanding that I remember reading this somewhere I forget if it was Joko Beck who said, but the feeling is as if I can somehow hold myself separate from this unpleasant, from this unwanted experience. And in fact, if you think of it as an unwanted experience rather than an unpleasant experience, that kind of brings it closer to what's the real problem in the moment. You know, my knee's hurting. It's unpleasant, but really it's unwanted. And the subtle, unseen, maybe not so subtle, the habit of our mind, both flat-out denial and then the basic aversion to the unpleasant, the just pulling away, is this belief that I can somehow stay separate from it. It's happening over there. If I can't stay separate from it, then there's a way I can stop it and make everything okay again. And when you can't stop it and you get, can't stay separate from it, but we're still lost in the aversion to it that so often turns to uh, even stronger aversion into whole levels of self-judgment, even despair, depression. You know? Often I've seen for myself and with others, uh, say uh, some kind of chronic illness or chronic pain, a knee pain, a back pain, or some chronic illness where We might, in moments, be with the unpleasant. But overall, there's this sense, I should be able to be separate. Or if I could figure it out, what I did wrong and how to fix it, I could get rid of it. And when we can't, this subtle or not so subtle, turning the aversion back on ourselves because of not understanding the truth of dukkha, that's what am I doing wrong in this kind of, the whole kind of new age thing, you know, if I had the right thoughts, I wouldn't be ill. And if you remember years ago, maybe she's still around, there was this woman writer named Louise Hay who used to write all these books about the proper thoughts. These kind of thoughts lead to this kind of sickness. I just remember that certain thoughts, you'd have warts on your feet. Then it went on and on like that. And when I first developed this chronic disease, I I got a little bit sucked into that. You know, if you have the right thoughts, you won't get sick. And I started thinking, okay, Ramana Maharshi died of cancer. What about Ajahn Chah all those years, you know, eight or nine years where he was, had to be, had complete care? What about the Karmapa who died? Of, what about, wait a minute, they all died. 
all the most amazing people died. Even the Buddha, he died, you know. <laughs> Wait a minute, there might be something that isn't quite in alignment with reality about that way of thinking. This came up in an interview, I think it was today, again from the Buddha, but this is the habits of our mind. When we don't understand the truth of the fact that there's unpleasant, difficult things happen, that they happen, and that pleasant isn't the source of all our happiness. So he's talking to the Buddha about this this is the suit of the two darts, right? Where you experience something unpleasant, say a pain in the knee, and you shoot yourself with a second dart. The unpleasant's the first dart. The second dart is, what's the matter with me? I don't like this. This should go away. And so it's like you have an unpleasant physical feeling and an unpleasant mental feeling. But this paragraph, he's describing how our minds get into habits without seeing clearly. Having been touched by that painful feeling, he resists and resents it. Right? Does that sound about habitual, normal, what we do? Then in one who resists and resents that painful feeling, an underlying tendency of resistance against painful feeling comes to underlie his mind. In other words, it gets to be a habit. And so it just seems normal, doesn't it? With an unpleasant, painful feeling, of course we have aversion to it. Of course we resist it. That's normal. I'm not saying it's bad, I'm just saying, look and see, that's normal. Then, under the impact of that painful feeling, he then proceeds to look for and enjoy sensual happiness. Why does he do so? Because an untaught worldling, O monks, does not know of any other escape from painful feelings except the enjoyment of sensual happiness. That makes me, I just find that so poignant. And so true, because when we have something painful going on, someone was saying today, I saw it in myself, I go off into fantasy, some pleasant fantasy, because here you can't do much else. So the mind goes to find some pleasant feeling as seemingly the sensible way out of unpleasant feeling. And so then, in him who enjoys essential happiness, the underlying tendency to lust for pleasant feelings comes to underlie his mind, right? So now there's the habit of resistance to unpleasant, the habit of lusting for pleasant. He does not know, according to facts, the arising and ending of these feelings, nor the gratification, the danger, and the escape connected with these feelings. And then he goes on to say, then the tendency for ignorance in regards to neutral becomes the next habit. That is what I really want to talk about, that the gratification, the danger, and the escape, to look and see what's really going on. Because when we don't look, when we're what he calls an untaught worldling, that's some sorrow. We spend our life just ping-ponging back and forth between unpleasant feeling, need to find a pleasant feeling, that one goes away, need to find another one, needing another one and not finding it is unpleasant, so then we get another pleasant, then it's neutral, and we really have no clue what to do with neutral. We either fall asleep or we make, we even, people here have even made unpleasant fantasies. God forbid, it's better than neutral. At least I feel like me having a suffering unpleasant fantasy. It's better than calm. 
It's better than nobody home. So we're ping-ponging back and forth. There's another phrase somewhere in the suttas that dukkha either ripens as confusion, ripens as bewilderment, or it ripens as search, ripens as investigation. So here, the untaught whirling he's talking about, there's unpleasant, you just run to the pleasant, and we spend our whole life doing that. That's dukkha ripening as bewilderment. Or we get really lost, we get really lost in the aversion. That's ripening as bewilderment. But ripening as search, that I know is what we're all doing here at moments. You can tell the difference. Wow, what's really going on here? Not assuming my sense of suffering, of dissatisfaction, of something not just working, the square peg in the round hole, that that's because of this unpleasant feeling. We stop, we look, we explore, just with this moment-to-moment mindfulness, and it reveals itself. So this is where we start to see even pleasant feeling is included within dukkha. And this is the point where people say, why do I need to know this? Give me, please, somewhere to go to have a moment of pleasure. But that's when you're thinking of dukkha as suffering, only suffering, when you're thinking of it with aversion. We're thinking even pleasant is dukkha, means even pleasant is unreliable, is unsatisfactory. Look and see, as you're saying, it just doesn't last long. There's one sutta, where Sariputta is saying this. This is actually a sutta. It's like Sariputta's lion's roar of his attaining arhatship, of his complete enlightenment, which didn't happen after only two weeks. Maybe it took another couple of days. But he's talking about, to the Buddha, different ways he would express his understanding, his freedom. And he's, this is one way. If they were to ask me this, venerable sir, I would answer thus. Friends, there are these three feelings. What three? Pleasant feeling, painful feeling, neither painful nor pleasant feeling. These three feeling friends are impermanent. Whatever is impermanent is dukkha. When this was understood, delight in feelings no longer remained present in me. Then the Buddha says, good, Sariputta, good. This is another method of explaining in brief that same point. Whatever is felt is included within dukkha. Whatever is felt is included within dukkha. Included within unreliability. Included within the sankhara, the sense of formations that come together, go apart. And that doesn't mean that we start to hate unpleasant, I mean hate pleasant or fear pleasant. It doesn't mean, and this is where sometimes where people go with this, when they start to look at it um, or start to hear this, they start to think, and I did this for a while myself. I thought it was, you know, very clever. Oh, everything's dukkha. Everything's suffering. So there's no point in feeling pleasure or appreciation for anything, you know. Just, oh, so it's a beautiful plant. Never mind, it's going to die. You know, it's a pretty day today, but so what? Tomorrow's going to freeze. It's Massachusetts in November. Don't get all excited about it, you know. 
go out to dinner like I saying, okay, it's a nice dinner, but so what? It's just going to turn into junk in my stomach. So why don't I just like just bolt it down and stay home and eat Zwieback? You know, what's the difference? And I, I went through a phase like this. We used to call it years ago, we called it the Dukkha Club. We'd kid around in Dukkha, which we thought we were being very clever. I mean, it, for me, it's my sense of humor and with the other friends too, and it would help us laugh rather than be aversive. But I can see now where it put that lens of nothing's worth appreciating. It's all dukkha, it's all, and you hear it goes into aversion. And that's not wisdom, that's not panya, that's not clear seeing. I remember, this is on staff years ago, this couple got together, a, a man and a woman, they got together as a couple, and they're a very cute couple, and they were walking down, I was watching them walk down the driveway hand in hand, and with, I forget who, but another one, of our Duke Club, we turned to each other and said, they're so happy, give them six months. You know, <laughs> it'll break up. All meetings end in partying, you know, and all that stuff's true, but it doesn't have to have that tinge. Well, 20 years later, I haven't heard from them for a while, but 20 years later, they were still together, very happy, so it took longer. <laughs> that, that is not understanding the truth of Dukkha. That's moving into a kind of a, a fear of the unpleasant, kind of a despair. It's not understanding. The way the Buddha talked about the understanding is to bring in investigation. This is what he said about gratification, danger, and escape is a really wonderful um, model to bring in in all kinds of aspects of your experience when you're investigating. Because He's not saying pleasant is bad and horrible and not good. He's saying there's gratification. Of course there's gratification. He said before I was, uh, uh, when I was still a bodhisattva, before my enlightenment, it occurred to me, what is the gratification in the world? What is the danger in the world? What is the escape from the world? And I saw whatever pleasure and joy there is in the world, this is the gratification of the world. And he says, later, I set out seeking the gratification in the world, and whatever gratification there is, that I have found. And so it's very sensible. It's very in touch with our experience. There is gratification. There is joy. There is appreciation, even, you know, just of sensual desire, of sensual pleasure. There's gratification in that. But don't stop there. Keep steady with our awareness, and then we'll see what is the danger that the world is impermanent, bound up with unsatisfactoriness, bound up with unreliability, and subject to change. This is the danger in the world. So if we're putting all our eggs in the basket of any particular moment experience for gratification, that's the danger, and we're going to suffer. And the removal, the abandoning of desire and lust for the world, this is the escape from the world. He's not saying the removal of the world, but the abandoning the lust, stopping that running back and forth, the pleasant feeling every time something we don't isn't quite pleasant arises. This is the escape from the world. And to quote Eckhart Tolle, because I like the way he says it, it doesn't mean that we no longer appreciate pleasant or beautiful things or conditions. Understanding dukkha does not mean we stop appreciating beauty, love, joy, or even pleasant, even, you know, the nice taste of a 
I don't know, a mango lassie. Why did that come in my mind? But to seek something through them that they cannot give, an identity, a sense of permanency and fulfillment, to seek that, that's the recipe for frustration and suffering. So it's really just seeing the facts as they are. It may seem like everything gets all flat, like we're losing something, but we're not. That's when we're putting all our eggs in some pleasure thing. And like the emperor's new clothes, telling ourselves, this is making me so happy. And fighting like crazy to deny all the moments when it's not like that and wondering why we might be a little bit confused. And the other aspect of delusion, not recognizing accurately, this incorrect perception. Same as with impermanence, we perceive permanence. Similarly with dukkha, with the unreliable aspect of all experience, we don't recognize that and we see it as reliable. Or another way, this habit, another way of misperception, when our perception or consciousness or mind is colored with aversion, colored with denial, with resistance. And this is, I think, one of the um, kind of tricky places in terms of understanding this truth, this, this um, quality of dukkha in experience. Because of this deeply ingrained habit, the Buddha spoke of, of pulling back, of aversion, of disconnecting from unpleasant experience, either from fear or by just pretending we're not there or by lashing out with anger and blame. When that aversion's coloring the mind, the chitta, kalesa, we can't recognize accurately. So it's sort of like a catch-22, sort of like a cycle that keeps going until we stop and recognize the aversion. This from the Buddha. Again, when one dwells with a mind obsessed and oppressed by ill will and does not understand as it really is the escape from arisen ill will, on that occasion one neither knows or sees as it really is one's own good or the good of others or the good of both. We just can't see straight when aversion, when dosa, when ill will is coloring our mind. And so our, the deep habit of our mind to meet unpleasant, unwanted experience with some form of resistance ill will makes it just that much more tricky to recognize without ill will, oh yeah, this really difficult things happen. It's not my fault. It's not something wrong. It's just how it is. This is difficult. It's difficult, but when, when there's a moment, or more than a moment, of that mindful, clear awareness, just simply meeting the difficult experience, the pain in the knee, the cramping in the joints, the fear of getting old, the sense of loss, the feeling of loneliness, the feeling of grief, just meeting it as it is in that moment without ill will, it's still a feeling of grief or loss or cramping in the joints or growing old. 
but it doesn't have to lead to this sense of isolation, this sense of something wrong. It doesn't have to spin us into this whole sense of being at odds with life as it is because this bad thing is happening. Oh, yes, here it is. Bankai, who uh, was a a Japanese Zen master, uh, I think the 8th century, I'm not sure which, but he said at one point, don't set yourself into confrontation with things. Then your primary being reveals itself in its true form. Don't set yourself into confrontation with things. Then your primary being reveals itself in its true form. So just in a moment, when we're not in contention with a moment of experience, not in contention with sorrow or loss or illness or unpleasant or anger, when we're not in contention, when the mind is fully present and willing to just meet this as it is, then our natural being does reveal itself in its true form. That's when there's those moments of, I call it just isness, the times when we can, can recognize an intimation of the natural purity, natural luminosity of mind, of consciousness. We all have those moments. There's nothing special when there's just this. The mind is not in contention. You can be drinking tea, you can be walking, you could be feeling comfortable, you could be feeling cold, you could be feeling hot, you could be feeling sad, you could be feeling anxiety, you could be feeling contentment, your body could hurt, you could be hungry, it doesn't matter what's happening. But when there's fullness of awareness and present and not in contention with experience, then the sense of seeing through not looking to experience to, for reliability, for happiness, for ease. The sense of fighting with what's happening is gone. There's a sense, actually, of understanding the truth of dukkha in that moment. Denial of dukkha, denial of even dukkha dukkha, of unpleasant stuff that's happening, all the things I've mentioned, illness, loss, fear, whatever. Thinking that there's something wrong that it shouldn't arise, Have you noticed that when it happens to us, because something's wrong, we either blame ourselves, like I did with that illness, or try and hide it, or feel other people don't want to know about it, or we're embarrassed, or we just feel really isolated? Have you ever had a time when you were, I don't know, in a lot of depression, or grief, or illness, or loss, and you just kind of felt really alone with your experience. I mean in a, in a way that's kind of aversive, that's kind of depressive, that was really isolated. And the sense of the suffering makes us feel more and more alone, as if there's something wrong. This is really not understanding the truth of dukkha. Because the reverse of it is, it's really kind of the, the jewel that's arises when dukkha is understood. The jewel that arises is this, when we're not in contention with experience, 
that sense of wisdom, of that clarity, the purity of heart and mind arises. And the other jewel is it manifests in our heart and in our relationships as compassion. When we're not in contention with difficult, with unpleasant, when we're not running to the pleasant to get away from it, when we're not meeting dukkha with aversion, the experience of life is not one of isolation, but it's of recognizing our non-separation. Suffering, and now I'm really using suffering as suffering, rather than being a modality to uh, enhance our feeling of weirdness, of isolation, of shame, of self-judgment. It actually is one of many ways, but suffering is one, that we can experience our commonality as beings, with all beings. And this is really the jewel in the opening into into the understanding, this uh, characteristic of dukkha, the natural response of compassion. The Dalai Lama has said that compassion develops through deep insight into what suffering is. And this comes from being with our own experience, really being with it, not with aversion, but with lack of contention with open-hearted presence, just to see what reveals itself. I've seen it a lot uh, in myself, and of course in other people, but how, say when we're on retreat, since that's where we are, but it's the same in life, this is not special to retreat, how our own particular experience, and we each have our particular experience, whether our particular experience of physical pain, our particular experience of not getting what we want or being separate from what we love, our particular experience of frustration, of loss, of illness, whatever it is, of trauma coming up, whatever it is. It has the particular form of our story, our particular physical, mental memories and experience, of course. And at first, when we're still in denial, when we're wrestling with it, when we're trying to keep it away, we're personalizing it. There's a lot of extra suffering in that, isn't it? First, the resistance, the denial, and then so often the sense for many people, not everybody, but for many people, the sense of self-blame. What am I doing wrong? Or I shouldn't be suffering from this so much. Or, you know, it's shameful. Everyone else is going on here. They're such great yogis, and I'm slumping up and down, filled with grief for something that happened 20 years ago. What's your problem? And we, we really get isolated and alienated. But it's this personalizing and this resistance that's actually creating the sense of separation where it doesn't exist. It's creating the sense of alienation, and this is all my story, where it doesn't need to exist. And in that moment, and many moments, when we suddenly stop resisting, and of course we can't do this with willpower, we all know this, but we still try. When suddenly just stop resisting, we stop being in contentious, oh, grief is like this, it's just like this. Totally open to it. And maybe not in that second, but it does happen over and over and over that it moves from the particular to the universal. 
It still can be our own particular story, but it becomes so clear that just my grief is the same in a way as the grief of all beings in the world. Every being goes through grief. Every being goes through loss. Everyone experiences illness. And when we stop fighting it, when we stop trying to fix and just open into it with this clarity, this wisdom, this non-contention, ah, it's just what it is. And we really see it doesn't mean it's not grief. Grief is still grief. Grief is like this. But you couldn't, and I mean, this is my experience, with grief or with illness, with pain, in those moments of pure presence and non-contention, it could be enormous grief, but I couldn't say it was difficult. I couldn't even say it was particularly suffering. It's just what it is. Times have been really sick, and there's presence and non-contention. I could say, yeah, I'm sick, and this and this and that. I couldn't really say it was difficult. It's just what it is. And then there is contention, right? Experience is not difficult, then suddenly the personalization comes in again. No judgment, it just doesn't. There's some resistance to us. Okay, that was great, but now it's enough already. It should be over. And that's like such a world of difference in my mind. It can be so subtle, but okay, but that's enough now. That's enough, get over it. And then it's personal, it's alienating, it's suffering, there's resistance. Like they say, the smallest amount of judgment heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. Exploring that, exploring that jewel of compassion in the heart of all suffering, in the heart of all dukkha. So I just want to, well, I'll just end with one example of that that quite inspires me. Again, remember that the saying of dukkha that leads to bewilderment and dukkha that ripens as search. So this is from John Lewis, who's a U.S. congressman. And um, he was one of the original Freedom Riders in 1959-1960 out of Nashville, a group of students from the university there, African-American students, began um, sit-ins and freedom rides. And um, they formed the beginning of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And he and many others, I mean, it's amazing. These were kids, 19, 20-year-old kids. The, the marches they experienced, lots of violence and beating in the freedom rides, unbelievable, the violence that they put themselves in. Um, and they kept going back and going back from a deep, deep commitment to nonviolent action. Everything they did was rooted in nonviolence, not as some external idea, but as a deep manifestation of uh, transformative love, of Christian love. It's a really very profound um, way of self-transformation as well as social action. And I just want to read what he, this is from his autobiography he, he wrote a few years ago. So just a little snippet where he's talking about that. He said, suffering puts us and those around us in touch with our consciences. It opens and touches our hearts. It makes us feel compassion where we need to. Suffering, though, can be nothing more than a sad and sorry thing without the presence on the part of the sufferer of a graceful heart. 
This is different language, but to me it says the same thing. Without the presence on the part of the sufferer of a graceful heart, an accepting and open heart, a heart that holds no malice towards the inflictors of his or her suffering. This is a difficult concept to understand, and it is even more difficult to internalize, but it has everything to do with the way of nonviolence. We are talking about love here, not romantic love, not the love of one individual for another, not loving something that is lovely to you. This is a broader, deeper, more all-encompassing love. It is a love that recognizes the spark of the divine in each of us, even in those who would raise their hand against us, those we might call our enemy. This sense of love realizes that emotions of the moment and constantly shifting circumstances can cloud that divine spark. Pain, ugliness, and fear can cover it over turning a person toward anger and hate. It is the ability to see through those layers of ugliness, to see further into a person than perhaps that person can see into himself that is essential to the practice of nonviolence. I think of that as really non-contention with presence and acceptance that takes us past the personal, past the needing life to service in a certain way, and into really, just for a moment, touching the truth of non-separation, of the kind of the, the, the luminous, non-suffering aspect that's available to us in any moment, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, whether it's wanted or unwanted. It's always accessible just now. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. Mm -hmm. 